Boy, that was one classy-looking worship team this morning. Let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I know what you're thinking. When is this guy ever going to get through the first two verses of 1 Peter? Aren't you thinking that? Uh, There's just a lot of truth in these two verses, but trust me, the pace will quicken soon, my beloved brothers and sisters, because at this rate, we'll spend the next 29 years uh, in this book, which uh, the rapture is going to happen way before that, in my opinion. So we got to got to get a move on here, right? For sure. But let's start here. You're looking at First Peter one, verses one and two. Every year, professional baseball teams, basketball teams, football teams. I'm talking about Major League Baseball, the NBA, NFL football teams. Uh, all of these uh, teams have a draft. And in the draft, these professional teams select, they choose particular players that they want on their team, or at least to try out for their team. Uh, players who had not previously played professional sports or spe- professional ball. Uh, this year, the NFL draft, or the, what, 32 teams in the NFL? Is it 32? Uh, will select players. Uh, take place on April 27th through 29th. And, uh, we're gonna go back in the time machine, but I know some people love, love these folks and some people don't like them too much, but back in the 2004 draft, the New York Giants selected, uh, Eli Manning, Peyton's brother. And obviously, Eli's very happy there, and Tom Coughlin, uh, very happy there, the head coach at the time. And that tandem of player, of player and coach, they ended up winning two Super Bowls. Unfortunately, um, head football coaches like Pastors are only as good as the previous season, and so uh, Tom Coughlin was fired about a year ago. Yeah, and Eli is up and down and all over the place, but he's an interesting guy. But I show you that picture because he was the number one draft pick of the Giants that year. But that's just a, a, a cropped, Anthony has a cropped uh photo of a larger photo, and the larger photo looks like that, and I'm covering up the, the third guy's face because you, know, you look at the head coach there, he looks happy, Eli's very happy, then you got the gen- the guy who was the general manager at the time, uh, I, he may have had different emotions about this signing, there he is, you know, uh, he's like, why did we sign this Yahoo or whatever, but they end up winning uh, two Super Bowls, so it's not all that bad, but uh, I know Phil knows the, the excitement of being drafted by a professional baseball team, but uh, most of us will not have the opportunity to be drafted by any professional sports team. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are one of God's draft picks. Maybe the one thing much better than being a professional sports draft pick is being among God's draft picks. And we're going to talk about the fact that God chose us before we chose him today. As we look at First Peter one one and two, but uh, let's pray for our teachability. This is a deep truth, but it's really uh, exhilarating truth once you wrap your hands around it. And it's also important to realize not all believers uh, put all that data together in the same way that that I do. For instance, I'm going to obviously preach my convictions, but I'm going to try to be respectful to some other views that Christians have about how all that works. So we need to be especially teachable. We need to be kind of bright-eyed, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Now, now, Jeff and Sonia, was it something I said, or, or what? You heard I was sick this week, right? 
I don't think I'm contagious right now, but uh, the room is kind of spinning slowly. So if I do anything that uh, is unusual, I'm going to blame it on that today. So, but uh, kind of like the cross-eyed javelin thrower. You know, he didn't win any prizes, but the uh, crowd always stayed awake when he was competing. So when you get a preacher on medicine, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting, you know. In fact, David, let's not even tape this one. I don't want this to be used against me later. Now, let's go ahead and tape it. I want to, I'll be interested to find out tomorrow what I actually said today, but, uh, uh, but yeah, you guys are sitting way in the back. Any particular reason for that? Yeah, it's easier to sleep back there. Yeah, nobody's going to sneak up on you back there, so that's the good thing. That is you, right? I, mean, I thought maybe it was your evil twins or something got off the boat. But yeah, let's pray for our uh, teachability and also for those who protect and service. And there's a, you know, a chilling scene from uh, Ground Zero on 9/11. One of those heroic firefighters in New York City, and there's some peace officers who were murdered last summer. And there's some folks that we know and love and pray for in our active military. So, uh, I don't know. Anthony, lead us in opening prayer. Would you pray we'll be teachable and pray for those who protect and serve us, okay? Well, you know, when it comes to, to baseball players and pitchers especially, I'm, I'm, uh, very, very biased. My favorite professional baseball pitcher, of course, is, uh, a guy who's world famous mainly because he's the spouse of Lindley Lovett Klein. That's the reason he's so famous. You know, if you want to, you can't just Google Phil Klein anymore. You have to, uh, uh, you have to Google, uh, Lindley Lovett Klein's husband. That's the only way that he'll come. That's the only way he comes up. But yeah, he was drafted by the Texas Rangers organization and then uh, pitched for them and pitched for the Phillies. And this year, he's the number one pitcher and the tallest player on the, uh, Yokohama Bay Stars baseball team. And baseball is kind of my first love. And I was always a pitcher, so I, I love baseball a lot. And so here are some uh, uh, kind of corny jokes about baseball. Uh, what did the baseball glove say to the baseball? Catch you later. I said they were corny, not necessarily funny. Why are so many baseball umpires fat? Because they're always cleaning their plate. All right. Why was Cinderella kicked off her baseball team? She ran away from the ball. Come on now. That was easy. How do you play zebra baseball? Three stripes and you're out. Yeah, I love that about baseball. It's just, especially when it's a pitcher. I mean, three strikes. Once you get that third strike, you're out of there. You know, come back next time. You know, it's just so great to actually do that to somebody, man. As a pitcher, it's great. <laughs> But you know what? As a slow pitch softball pitcher, I didn't really like striking people out. I would rather get two strikes and then let them hit a foul ball, and then they're out, which is technically a strikeout. But I hate it for somebody to swing and miss because it's embarrassing. It can happen. Once you get an 0-2 count and slow pitch softball, that's pressure because uh, you can play with them as a pitcher. But I, I hated it when, when that would actually happen. I'd much rather you just hit a foul, foul ball, ideally, so none of us would drop it. You know, That was always good. Kind of broke the flow of the hilarious uh, jokes here, but... Uh, why do major league stadiums tend to be cool places? Because they're usually full of fans. Yeah, tonight. Yeah. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 
I got, hey, I only get 10% of his contract. I'm his, I'm his agent, man. He's, he's famous thanks to you mainly and me also. So everybody at Cameron knows him and all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, this week, uh, this tonight, uh, this week, we're going to begin our three week men's uh, PM Bible study. Uh, we got plenty of material for you. If you haven't signed up or told me you're coming, just go ahead and come to show up at 6.33 actually is when we're going to start tonight. 6.33 will be done no later than 7.45. Uh, we won't have a drawing every Sunday night or necessarily every Thursday night, but we are going to have a drawing uh, uh, tonight for a $20 gift certificate to every TBFer's favorite restaurant, Johnny's at Oak Tree. And... Uh, but the drawing will be for those who uh, show up and for those who stay for the entire time and don't go to sleep. And if you're still awake at 7.43 when we actually draw the name out of the hat, you will be eligible to win a $20 gift certificate. And uh, if that's called bribery, uh, well, what can I say? I'm guilty. I'm just trying to pull out all the stops here. So just so you'll know. Well, see, maybe something you need to do, you know what I mean? You know, it's all good. So, Phyllis, we're trying to help help the cause here, okay? Yeah. Okay, we're uh, just beginning a study of First Peter, and as we said initially, this book really kind of has two parts. It's talking to Christians who are living under fire. They're living their faith under fire. And the first part of the book talks about a summary of what our Christian faith is all about, and a survey of what Christian works ought to be coming out of our lives. The second part focuses on the importance of submission to human authority figures in our Christian life under God and the the difficult and painful issue of suffering in the Christian life. Now, right between those two parts, uh, we have a purpose statement, which I've paraphrased for you on your notes there. And I would kind of sum up that purpose of this overall letter this way. As spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth, Christians like Lindley Lovett, whether she lives in Dallas, Fort Worth, Duncan, Oklahoma, or Yokohama, Japan, or uh, Ron Miller as he goes to the t-shirt shop every day and, and earns a living, as spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth, Christians should not be controlled just by our emotions and feelings, but we should consistently live out our faith centered on our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't let your emotions and feelings drive you because you're going to get some bad feelings living in this painful world. It's going to happen to everybody. So we should live centered on our Lord Jesus Christ such that unbelievers who might tend to slander us as backward and and repressive and exclusive because we're believers in Christ will see the reality of Christ in our lives and his goodness and ultimately glorify God by coming to him in faith. So that's uh, the idea that really kind of drives everything that he says in this epistle. Now I promise this will be our last week on the first two verses, but let's look at these again. We're going to focus on one particular part today. Peter, the human author of this letter, an apostle, uh, Nicole, you're right, an, a capital A apostle. We talked about last week, those were a very unique set of people at the foundation of the Christian church. Peter, a capital A apostle, Jesus Christ, writing under inspiration to those who reside as aliens, par epidemois, uh, as a people short time 
in one location with an allegiance to something much bigger than where they're living. Scattered throughout, we'd say, northern and western Turkey today. He's using the designations based on the first century Roman Empire, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of God, the Holy Spirit, to obey in faith, to obey the call of the gospel, to believe in Christ and thus be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Now notice, uh, in the center of that, he says we are chosen according to the foreknowledge. Uh, that's the doctrine of election. And we're going to talk about the doctrine of election today. I think it's important to put this in context. Uh, these believers have been forced to flee from their homes and leave their homes, their families, and their pensions. And I know they didn't technically have pensions like we do today, but I'm just talking about, you know, kind of just trying to uh, help you feel their pain as they've had to leave everything that they've had to get out away from the persecutors. These folks are living their faith under fire. They've been rejected by much of their culture, much of their world. And yet Peter's saying, look, you know what? The world may reject you, but God has chosen you. You know, you're on his team. You're one of his draft picks, and that's really what really counts. Now, when you talk about the doctrine of election, you're getting into some deep theology. You're kind of scraping the Milky Way, as they used to say at seminary. And you're kind of leaving the comfort zone, because you're going to have to think kind of hard today, extra hard today. Uh, that's kind of a play on the twilight zone. Remember that, James? You know, you are now entering the twilight zone. Remember they said that at the beginning of that uh, uh, famous early 60s TV show that's uh, still available on DVD if you want to check it out, Rod Serling, right? Well, when you get into some of these deep theological areas, you're kind of leaving your comfort zone. You're going to have to think pretty deeply, and then we need the Spirit to, to guide our discussion here. And also not to be arrogant because you think now, in 40 minutes from now, that you understand this and everybody else is wrong. That would be a bad way to leave the auditorium here. Now, we're talking about doctrine of election. We're not talking about that election, okay? We're talking about a different kind of election. And kind of a baseline theological definition of the doctrine of election is God's pre-temporal choice of those he would save. Now, when you're dealing with this issue, it's one of those issues, and there are several of these in Scripture, that are bigger than the human mind can totally wrap itself around. Uh, and it's interesting to me to see how we Christians, how biblically-centered Christians, Trey, have traditionally dealt with some of these other issues before we think about the election issue. For instance, when it comes to the being of God, uh, you know, I could ask you, and I, I think you can read the answer, and you probably already know it, but uh, if somebody were to ask you just out of the blue uh, when you didn't expect it, maybe the the hello there man at Walmart, you know, they've got a guy there that is his job. That's a job I want in my retirement. It's just say hello, you know, hello, hello, welcome to Walmart, welcome to Walmart. I can do that. I could remember that. It would take me a couple of weeks to kind of remember, but I could do that, I think, you know. Uh, but uh, so if he just walked up to you and said, welcome to Walmart, is God one or is God three? So you're not expecting it, okay? What would you say? you got to say both. You know, is God one or is God three? Well, both are true. This is important. Both are true as smaller parts of a larger reality. God is both one and three in a way we can't totally understand. But there's only one God, right? Here are Israel, the Lord our God is one God. 
But that word for one is the same word used in Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh. And the marital act doesn't make you a two-headed person. It's a composite unity. Okay, So God is one in that sense, but we know that God the Father is full deity, and God the Son is full deity, and God the Holy Spirit is full deity. So there's a sense in which there's only one God, but three persons who are God. And we call that the Trinity. And we're realizing when the Scripture emphasizes the oneness in one place and the threeness in another place, those are two aspects or two parts of a larger truth, right? So, good. Everybody said both on that, right? We're taking, you're going to get graded on this, so you need to get the correct answers. Is Christ in his incarnation, after the first Christmas, walking around the world, really from the virgin conception on, really, is the incarnate Christ God, or is he a human being? What are you going to say? You're going to say he's both. Now, the theologians call that the hypostatic union, but that's, you know, I'm against all those unions. The plumber's union, the electrician's union, I believe in right to work, so I'm against the hypostatic union. Actually, I'm actually for that union. But, yeah, a uh, similar question is, is Jesus the Son of God, or is he the Son of Man? He's both, right? You're going to affirm both. Uh, and again, the deity of Christ and the true humanity of Christ are uh, both true as smaller parts, Julie, of a larger reality. And if you emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, or you emphasize one and you water down the other, you don't have it right. I mean, you can be Unitarian and believe uh, about the Trinity, there's only one God, or you can be a polytheist and think there's three different gods. You can say, there's actually, the original Christian heresy wasn't denying the deity of Christ, which is what post-enlightenment people want to do. It was denying the humanity of Christ. That was the original heresy that, kind of tried to infiltrate the early church as early as the late first century. Docetism, dokio means to appear or to seem, but not really to be. And docetism was the idea. Jesus looked like a human being, but he wasn't really a human being. He was just God pretending to be a human being. That's called docetism. And the early church councils who looked at the scripture and said, let's really hammer out what the scripture is saying about Jesus, said, that's not what it's talking about. He's asleep in the back of the boat. I mean, he's got a true humanity there that gets tired, that cries. You know, Jesus wept. And yet, he's also, as Colossians 2.9 says, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily, human bodily form. So, uh, both of those aspects, the deity of Christ, the true humanity of Christ, are both true as smaller parts of a larger reality. How about uh, the dynamics of Scripture? We will take the time today. Look at uh, Matthew 23. The last couple of weeks I've touched on this as we've talked about the importance of Scripture as being the Word of God written. Look at uh, Matthew 23, or 22 I want actually, sorry. 22 verse 41. Look what the Lord Jesus says about Old Testament Scripture. He seems to think that David is the human author of Psalm 110, but that the Holy Spirit is the divine author, Psalm 110. He believes in dual authorship of Scripture. So I could say, is uh, the Scripture uh, the work of human authors, or is the Scripture the work of a divine author? Is it uh, the Word of God or the Word of man? Look what Jesus says. Now, we're not going to take the time to develop the context, but in Matthew 22:41, Ashley, look at this. 
Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. It sounds like Jesus, a big bully, walks up to these people, asks them a question they can't answer. They've asked him a series of questions in public. This is just a few days before the crucifixion, Anthony. And they're trying to make him look bad. And, of course, he hits a home run on each question. And so at the end of their interaction, he asked them one question, only one. And when the Pharisees were still gathered together after exhausting all their ammunition they were going to use against Jesus, Jesus asked them a question, flips the tables, and he says, what do you think about the Christ? Remember, the term Christ isn't his last name, but a designation meaning the Savior, the promised Savior. Uh, whose son is he? And they said he's the son of David. He's going to be of the line of David, humanly speaking, which would mean since the Christ is a great-great-great-grandson of David, He's inferior to David. David has seniority, humanly speaking. So Jesus says, well, then that's true, which is true, partially, part of the equation. Then how does David, the human author of Psalm 110, in the spirit, the divine author of Psalm 110, call him Lord, Adonai? Why would David call his great-great-great-grandson that he outranks his Adonai, his Lord, uh, and then he cites the first verse of Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh God the Father, David's writing this, said to my David's Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand, and it goes on. It's very important what he's saying there. But the point is, Jesus is ascribing the psalm he's citing as being the product of David and the Spirit, of being the work of a human author and a divine author. Go back to First Peter uh, 1, 1 and 2. In that debate about inspiration, you hear all kinds of passages, typically second. Timothy, you know, three sixteen seventeen, Second uh, Peter one uh, twenty one, uh, you know, all of Psalm one nineteen. You get all these statements, but very rarely do you go Jesus talking about David wrote the Psalm, but the Spirit uh, inspired the Psalm, and I think that's a great place to go. So, with all that being asked, is Scripture the Word of God or the Word of Man? Of course, we're going to say it's both, right? So now we're moving from those analogous doctrines that and by the way all these groups that have different opinions on election uh you know we have calvinist among us at tbf we have arminians among us at tbf uh and then we have calminians and the technical term is emeraldians among us and i'm one of them at tbf uh and it's funny though at a theological level uh a lot of people who are champions of uh of calvinism are, are very happy Trinitarians, they don't doubt the Trinity, and very happy in their embrace of the hypostatic union, and very happy in their understanding of dual authorship of Scripture, and at the same time, and across the street, or a different uh, university, different seminary, you've got Arminians that are very happy Trinitarians, and very happy in their belief uh, in their faith in the hypostatic union, and very happy in their belief in dual authorship of Scripture, that don't want to use the same approach, that want to emphasize either the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of man, and hammer out a system. And you can do that, and they might even be right. They can't both be right at the same time. But uh, I think what you do with this area of truth is what you do with the Trinity and with the being of Christ and with the dynamics of Scripture. You affirm everything the Scripture does as component parts of a bigger truth we can't totally understand and live with it. And, and deal with it, you know. And again, I, uh, although when some people try to push me around with our, with their Arminianism or their Calvinism, 
you know, I don't, I don't let people push me around on stuff like that because sometimes I haven't even heard there's a middle position, uh, which, uh, which is unfortunate. It's called the fallacy of the excluded middle or the apparent dilemma quite often. That's, that's why we do our, uh, presidential voting now. I mean, because we basically have, you have two major candidates. I know you had the Gary Johnson people in the middle and stuff, but basically the electorate's going to go one way or the other. So I don't have to convince you to vote for me as much as I need to convince you not to vote for the other one. And then you either don't vote or vote for me. And, and, and a lot of these big theological debates, uh, people understand there's a middle position. You don't have to be a Unitarian or a polytheist with the biblical data. You can be a Trinitarian and actually be correct. You know, you don't have to be a Docetist or an Arian. You can believe in the hypostatic union. But on this issue, I think because it's so personal, this is all about that the the uh, under the hood details of salvation, meaning your salvation. You know, this is important. People want to stress one or the other, and I respect that. And if I made those assumptions, I'd end up where they are. But I think there's a position in the middle that actually uh, does the same kind of thing we do normally with these kind of big issues. So, is God sovereign in salvation? Uh, does actually choose us before we choose him? Or are human beings responsible? And he knows who we're going to choose, and so he chooses us because he knows what we're going to choose. Well, I'm convinced there's a middle position there, and I'm not the only one, which doesn't mean we're right just because I can name some of these big shot names, but I mean, have you heard of Bob Leitner? Anybody know Bob Leitner around here? Actually was our interim pastor here for two years before the current pastor got here 28 years ago, but it doesn't seem that long. Just uh, seems like just like that. Okay. Uh, Dr. Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary, Chuck Swindoll, Dr. Walford. James, you ever heard of Dr. Walford? But he's, he's not so much known for his soteriology as his... Way to go, my man. Use the technical term. Good job. They don't know what you mean, but that's okay. I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, well, good job. Yeah, no, we didn't practice that. Um, Dr. Honer, the guy that came up with all the dates for the New Testament events that I use, all these guys... Uh, are not really Calvinist or Arminians there in the middle. Uh, and it's, it's weird, but it's interesting. When you look at the biblical data, the Bible does talk about those who are chosen, those who are elect, but it never talks about the non-elect or the non-chosen. It talks about the elect and those who don't believe. Okay, And let me show you an example. Go to Acts chapter 13. We saw this... Uh, seems like only yesterday, but we, you know, we spent a long time working our way through the book of Acts, and, and I wouldn't take... Take that away for anything. I think that was about uh, 19 months of very well-directed concentration on our history as Christians. And uh, I enjoyed it. And I didn't set up Linda. When somebody actually says something nice, I usually remember it. I remember we got finished with Acts, and it took us like two years. And Linda Kinney said something nice at the end. And we did practice that. It took us like three hours for her to get her, her lines right. But that was very nice she did that. But, uh, yeah, this is Paul during the first missionary journey. And if I can find my passage, I want to start out here. Acts 13. Yeah, that's, this is, uh, we're in Antioch of Pisidia. Not Syrian Antioch, the missionary sending area, but in, we're back in Turkey. We're kind of lower than where Peter's talking to. But look at verse 38. He's giving this long sermon talking about the Old Testament background of uh, the plan of salvation culminating in Christ. And look at verse 38. We're in Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Uh, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, and he's talking about Jesus Christ, 
Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's being offered to you. You can have your sins forgiven. And through Him, everyone who believes in Him is freed from all things, which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. He's in a synagogue saying the law of Moses was not a ladder you could use to climb to God. And then he goes on, but let's drop down to verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out of the synagogue, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them on the next Sabbath. You gotta come back. And as a visiting, as a visiting speaker, Scott, that's, that's music to your ears when they want you to come back. You know, if they say you did a good job, but they never ask you to come back, you wonder if they thought you did a good job, you know. I, to my knowledge, I'm the only non-Baptist pastor who ever spoke to the Baptist, the Mullins Baptist pastors meeting. They asked me to speak to them, about 25 of them, and they gave me a very nice hearing, and they never asked me to come back. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a, a plus or a negative, but uh, it's always nice when they ask you to come back. So please come back and, and cover this again. We want to hear this again. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes, Gentiles who were going to the synagogue to find out about the Christ of Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled in the synagogue to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders of the synagogue who weren't crazy about Paul's gospel, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary the word of God, the gospel about Jesus, be spoken to you first, here in the synagogue, the Jew first, also the Greek. But since you repudiated the vast majority of them and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Now, what was his offer to them at the first uh, uh, synagogue service, verse 38? Forgiveness of, God's, uh, forgiveness of sins is offered to you. You can have it if you want it. Through him, everyone who believes is going to be freed from that. But most of them reject it. So he looks at them and he says, since you repudiate it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. He doesn't say, since you repudiate it and prove you're unelect. He doesn't say that. He never says that. He says, since you repudiate it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. Drop down to verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, God's pre-temple choice. Believed. Okay? Now watch this. Uh, in white there, we've got the Gentiles rejoiced. They believed. But God chose them before they chose Him. However, that's not the way the unbelievers are described. Since you thrust yourself aside and you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. You know, this goes back to God's relationship morally uh, to the good things in his plan vis-a-vis uh, -vis the evil things in his plan. And I think the only way you can deal with this biblically is to say, while God is the ultimate and sovereign cause of all things, he has a different moral responsibility, a different moral relationship, I should say, with evil than he does with good. James says every good thing comes from God and he's praiseworthy for it. But none of the sin that we generate is God's problem. It's not his fault. We're responsible for it. Is God sovereign? Does God get the praise for every good thing? Yeah. Even the good stuff we do, he ultimately gets the praise for. Is God blamed 
for murders and drug addiction and pornography and rapes and no. God didn't do that. He's the ultimate cause, but he's not the morally responsible cause. The Ford Motor Company is the ultimate cause for all of the accidents that involve Ford Motor Vehicles. But if somebody gets drunk or high and gets in a car and runs into a van full of a family and kills them, the Ford Motor Company is not responsible for that. They're the ultimate cause, but they're not the blamable cause. So watch this. You have The problem with this system is it's just like the Trinity. It's just like the hypostatic union. It's just like the dynamics of the inspiration of Scripture. It gives you a non-logical diagram. And let me tell you something. Theologians don't like non-logical diagrams, but they hold their nose and put up with it when it comes to the Trinity, the hypostatic union, and inspiration, because it obviously has to fit like that. But some of our fellows, when they want to deal with God choosing us pretemporally and us rejecting God in time, those who do reject him, they want to have a symmetrical diagram. So the Calvinist says, well, obviously... The elect are here, so the unbelievers are non-elect. They must be above that diagram in a, in a uh, symmetrical fashion. The Arminian starts with God's love and human responsibility and says, clearly, it's not God's fault these people are going to hell. They're the ones that are choosing against his common grace. And so if that's true, believers must be over here. I'm suggesting you, let's do, let's, let's affirm everything the Bible says about God's sovereignty and human responsibility but realize that uh, the elect are part of the good stuff and the unbelievers are part of the bad stuff, and that's their fault. That's not God's fault. And ultimately, we give God the praise for this. So that's the way I handle that. And so watch this. Let's put uh, Acts 13 on this basic diagram. We've got the same basic uh, components. God deserves praise for good. Morally responsible creatures are responsible and guilty for bad. And I, I love what's, what Luke 17 says. Jesus says, and he's thinking about Judas ultimately. He says, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, even from out of the twelve. But woe to him through which they come. It's inevitable. God's planned it. It's going to happen. It's according to his sovereign plan. But the mechanism of this is such Judas is culpable for his decisions. He wasn't programmed as a robot to reject this thing and to send, you know, to uh, reject and, and to uh, betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. So I think once you realize that that's the way this works, you can kind of put this on a diagram. Those who rejected the Gospels have themselves to blame, and God holds them responsible, and he's not angry without a cause. But those who receive the Gospel weren't just lucky to have been in that synagogue that day. It goes back to the very eternal purposes of God. So we're going to put uh, those who reject below that line, uh, they're responsible, and those who believe, hopefully you and me, uh, in that upper uh, area. So we've got God is sovereign, and we're responsible, just like God is one and three, and Christ is God and man, and Scripture is written by a human author and a divine author. But here's the cool thing about TBF. Most churches, many churches, will have a position on this in their doctrinal statement. And if you're an Arminian, you go to an Arminian church. If you're a Calvinist, you go to a Calvinist church. Uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, some churches really pound away at that. Other churches don't really pound away at that. And di- but they never get into this detail, okay, so much. They just kind of ignore it because they're not. They don't want to shoot people away. 
But TBF is this amazing, crazy experiment that seems to be working uh, where we kind of emphasize the main things, right? Who God is, who Christ is, who we are, what Christ did, uh, what we do, what Christ did, what Christ will do, and what the Bible is in, in, in specific, but not exquisitely hammered out minute detail. And the reality is, TBF has always had some Calvinists, some Arminians, and some Emeraldians. That's where I am. Uh, it's, I remember the first time I met Joanne Lewis. I was I was out of town or sick. And I wasn't sick. I missed one Sunday in 28 years, and uh, I felt much worse than I feel today. And been up here, and and but I'm so bad most weeks nobody can tell if I'm sick. But uh, 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 you know I've been disgustingly healthy except for melanoma. I've had seven different kinds of skin cancer, which is weird. I didn't know there were that many. I've had neurofibroma, uh, basal cell carcinoma, uh, squamous cell carcinoma, skin cancer, uh, and melanoma, which is the one that can kill you and make you go blind. Both, you know. But it was by God's timing, we were, we found it very, very, very early, and that's, I don't want to make light of that, but um, I guess I did, just did. But other than my cancer, I've been disgustingly healthy, uh, and then I had my, uh, I had this one little procedure a couple of years ago that old people have to have, which I won't go into, and then I had the procedure recently where they stuck the thing down my throat, and they did random biopsies. After this over, they said, we did several random biopsies. I went, several random biopsies? Random biopsy? Do a purposeful biopsy. I mean, why a random biopsy? But they were all negative, and I said, well, good. You know, this is one of those tests I wanted to fail, you know, so I finally failed a test. So it was good. So I praise God for my disgusting health, but you know what? We are all so fragile. And the human, bo- human body is amazing. At one level, it's incredibly resilient. You can't believe what, you know, I've seen it. I've, I've seen some of you people, you've been able to bear through a lot, all kinds of amazing stuff by God's grace. And I, uh, you know, I always think there's a breaking point for everybody, and some of you, defy getting to the breaking point. It always amazes me because I'm thinking, you know, well, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking, Lord, if I had one one-hundredth of what she's dealing with, you know, it'd probably be, you know, in the fetal position, you know, under a couch somewhere. Uh, but some of you people have amazed me over the years. Uh, so we're amazing and resilient in some ways, but we're also incredibly fragile. I mean, literally, you can get in the car, go home, and have a drunk driver hit you at, right in front of Burger King, and they do it all the time, man. I go right past Burger King on Elk every day, and people blow through that thing. Big trucks. I mean, huge, massive trucks go through that going south or north. Don't they take the bypass? You know, 40 or 50 after the light changes. So, I mean, every every day could be your last. You know, Mama Joe used to say, there's no way you get out of this old world alive. right? But, uh, yeah, here's the thing. Uh, TPF is this amazing experiment where we allow you to kind of hammer out your own convictions in this area. And even on eschatology, which is the study of prophecy, you guys know my diagram of Revelation if you've been around very long, and if you haven't seen it, you'll see it pretty soon. But I always emphasize, even though I'm convinced my diagram is exactly right, Julie, I mean, every part of my diagram is perfect. I I believe that, or I wouldn't show it to you. I always say, you know, this isn't the only way people who love Jesus diagram Bible prophecy content. It's complicated. There's at least three major ways Christians do it. But the one thing we have in common, Russell, is we believe in a literal second advent. The Jesus who came, died, rose again, ascended, is going to come back literally, visibly, undeniably. We all agree on that, and that's the big thing. And TBF has always said, let's focus on the big things and allow ourselves to hammer out our own convictions on the smaller things. Okay, And the under-the-hood detail of 
the connection between God's sovereignty and human responsibility is one of those areas we allow you the freedom to hammer out your convictions. And so uh, the bottom line is, wherever you end up, and I'm not trying to so much promote my position as just trying to explain it, because I'm going to preach my convictions, not anybody else's, but out of respect for people who differ with me. Uh, and the thing is, no matter where you come down on this, there are great Christians in TBF and out of TBF who love the Lord just as much as you do, or maybe more, who have a different view on this than you do. And is that okay? I'm, I'm trying to be funny. Is that okay with you? Because, I mean, like, Martin Luther has a different view on this than I do, okay? Now, I like to think in heaven he's been briefed and he's an Emeraldian now, okay? <laughs> but I could be wrong, okay? Uh, John Wesley, who did basically revolutionize I- England for 75 years, he didn't do it, his his Savior did, was an Arminian, okay? And George Whitfield and Charles Wesley that uh, were contemporaries loved each other. The one did the other guy's funeral. I can't remember which one it is. I need to Google search it. It would take me three seconds to find out, but I haven't done it. I'm too lazy. Uh, and they respected each other, but they agreed to disagree on this. So here's the thing. People who love Jesus just as much as you do, maybe more, have a different view on this, and God loves them just as much. Uh, and TBF has always welcomed believers of goodwill. But I was going to say, Joanne Lewis, the first time I met them, yeah, I knew I knew I went off on a on a tangent, but it came back. Boom, you know. Uh, yeah, the first time I met Joanne Lewis, I, I wasn't there. I missed it. Uh, I think it was maybe it was vacation or something. We came back. Somebody told me, you know, Pam says, "Hey, we had a visitor." Went, really, <laughs> visitor here? You're right. Yeah, yeah. She seemed like a neat person. Her her husband's a PhD from Texas A&M. I said, "Oh, great, man! I got to meet these people." So I'll walk up and say, oh, you were the visitor last week. And she says, we're Calvinists. That's the first thing she said. I went, oh, okay. Well, you know, I'm a Scotch-Irish, you know, that's what I was. But, but I mean, you know, some people wear on their sleeve, you know, and it's okay, you know. Uh, and I said, you know what, we can have a kind of a more flexible approach to that around here. She said, oh, yeah, we we totally respect that. Said, oh, thank you. Because usually they want to, they act like I don't know this stuff and they want to cram it down my throat. And then I have to give them a little pushback, and you know, it's very ugly when that happens. But usually for me, because they usually slap me around quite a bit before, during, or after. Some of the things they say after not nice. Uh, I didn't. I don't yell. I don't scream. I don't cuss about stuff like this. I do get excited and talk too fast. That's just me. Okay. But uh, yeah, we've had Calvinists, and Calvinists, as they deal with this divine sovereignty, human responsibility uh, issue, they emphasize God's sovereignty. They say God chose the elect, pretemporally, unconditionally. And causes them to believe. Okay, and you can you can read that in the text. It might even be right. Uh, Arminians key on God's love and human responsibility and say, yeah, God chose according to His passive pre-knowledge. That's what foreknowledge here means, and that's a possible possible way to interpret that text, actually. Uh, and so that's that's possible. But my view is not called. Uh, Calvinianism, I, I call it that, just trying to be funny, but that usually makes really, hyper-Calvinists hate that term, and really hyper-Arminians hate that too, so I kind of not try not to use it around them, but our Emeraldians, there's a guy named Moses Emerald, who in the aftermath of the Institutes and Council of Trent, uh, and uh, actually, Senator Dort, actually, is what he's reacting to, kind of said, hey, there's actually a biblical balance here, uh, and here's what we're saying, the Emeraldians of the world. God chose us, and it wasn't based on our response, but He is so amazing, even though He chose me, not based on the fact that He knew I was going to believe, but so amazing. His choice 
for the elect turns out to be the ones who would have freely chosen anyway. That's how smart he is. And the problem with that is it doesn't, it's like this to, to a logician's ear, to somebody who uses strict Aristotelian logic, that's like me saying, okay, I got a group of 100 people. Okay, Julie, I got a group of 100 people on a Monday night after Pilates, okay? We got the room cleared out. We got 100 people here. And I say, okay, some, and Julie, you said, divide them into two groups, Pastor Brad. And I say something like this. Okay, we've got 100 people. Julie wants me to divide them into two groups. Everybody with red hair, get over there. Okay? Boom. Everybody who's six foot tall and taller, go over there. Now, you say, that's stupid. That won't work. That's a dumb way. You could say everybody who's under six foot, over six foot. Everybody with red hair, other hair. But I didn't say that. I said, everybody with red hair over there, everybody six foot and taller, go over there. And you know what? It just so happens I get two groups. I get 20, I get 20 over there and 80 over there. Okay? You know what? That's not a logical way to do it. But if I prearrange it so that group breaks down like that, I can use those kind of non, uh, symmetrical metrics and get two separate groups and only two separate groups. And that's just the flat the way it works. And the cool thing is, let's look at verse two now with all that in mind. Brad, that's all so unforgettable uh, that I could never forget that. Now, that's, you just got kind of a half a semester of theology, soteriology, if you want to know. That was, that's not easy to cram all that in there that quickly. But uh, I want you to notice, and I'm going to put a bow on this thing, that um, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in your salvation if you're a believer. Uh, salvation is of the Lord. It's not something we're doing for God. It's something he does for us. Uh, these folks are chosen, whether you're an Arminian chosen because he knew you were going to believe, or a Calvinist, he chose you uh, before, uh, without any reference to the fact you were going to believe. Uh, he just chose you out of his grace. Uh, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's the first member of the Trinity, uh, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that's the, we call him the third member of the Trinity, but he's second in this list, to obey, and that's the word, that means to obey the call to believe, that we've obeyed by believing in Jesus Christ and sprinkled the application of his saving work was applied to us. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. You know, we always like to say that God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. Hey, good to see you, brother. Doc, Dr. Duell. Good to... You know what? When when Dr. Duell and Dr. McCoy are walking down the sidewalk together, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing a paradox. If we had Dr. Buchanan, it would be a triadox. But anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. Uh, God the Son is the active agent. And God the Holy Spirit is the activating agent. And when we're talking about the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We're not talking about experiential sanctification, but but salvific sanctification. You know, we talked about this uh, at some point uh, in the recent past. You know, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit... Uh, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit works not just in the elect, not just in those who will believe, but in the whole world to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, you got it. Righteousness, you need it. Right? And you can't manufacture it. And judgment, it's coming. Moral responsibility before God. Right? That's what the Holy Spirit does in common grace. Okay? Then Jesus says things, crazy stuff like, 
unless you're drawn, you can't come. Unless you're drawn, you can't come. Uh, that's called efficacious grace. Efficacious grace isn't the common call to convict. It's the always effective kind of tractor beam that opens up the heart to believe. And everyone who receives efficacious grace does believe every time. And if you don't get efficacious grace, you won't believe. You're not even able to believe. So how does that work, Brad? Well, watch this. Common grace is extended to all, but at some point, everybody either responds to it and gets more or says no and distorts it or ignores it and doesn't get any more. And here's the cool thing. I know you like this, this statement. In every single case in which efficacious grace is not given, common grace has been rejected. See, common grace isn't enough to save, but it is enough to condemn, okay? Which is what the passage in Acts 13 says. Because you repudiated it, and you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, we're going to go to somebody else. Okay, It's on you. It's not because God didn't pick you. It's because you're refusing to respond to the gracious overtures of God. The grace of God is not coercive, it's persuasive. And in every case in which efficacious grace is not given, common grace has been rejected, and there will be no question about that at the justice bar. God will say, I wanted you, you didn't want me. In the very same Jesus Christ, who knows how this works much better than anybody in human history, on his way into Jerusalem for the last week, looks at the city and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to call you like a mother hen calls her chicks, but you were unwilling. That I wanted you and you don't want me. That's the problem. Okay, So it's very important to hold that in balance. And once you get that, it is so beautiful that God came up with this deal uh, as an Amaraldian, it's just unbelievable. God's so smart, he can make both these things happen at the same time. But then again, it is like the Trinity, isn't it? And it is like the hypostatic union, the person of Christ. It is like Scripture. Just incredible. God is so awesome. You've got to love it, right? So I think when you really let this truth permeate your heart, it makes you realize, I am one of God's draft, po- draft picks, right? And... But you never get, boy, I'm really cool because I understand this stuff now. It's like, wow, God is just so cool that he would do something like this, that he's just like this. It's awesome, you know? So, uh, yeah, there you go. You've got all three members of the Trinity, and you've got the coming of Christ. Uh, and, and so, you know, James and I, uh, uh, you know, are brothers from different mothers, and uh, James has got so much talent and so much passion, and I get a lot of energy out of James uh, and sometimes more energy than I want or need on some days, but I get a lot of good energy from James. And, you know, we, uh, we, uh, you know, you can almost nowadays in the evangelical culture, you could, you could deny hell or deny the deity of Christ and uh, you'd probably get away with that. But if you try to change the words in a praise song, you get in big trouble, you know. It's probably copyright violations and then, uh, you know, we changed it from, uh, he came from heaven and earth to show the way. Uh-uh. That sounds like Peter Frampton, you know, show me the way. But, I mean, you know, Buddha claims to have shown the way. Muhammad claims to have shown the way. All these religious leaders claim to show the way. Jesus didn't come to show the way. He came to be the way. And I just said, let's change that puppy. We're going to change that. We're, you know, I'm typing up, at that point I was typing up all those songs anyway every week. So I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to show the way. We're going to say to be the way. And you people, it's taking like 12 years to deprogram that out of your mind. I mean, you know, I mean, really, I mean, it's unbelievable. But, 
you know, it's all good. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna conclude this. Let me let me put my pastor's hat on. I've had my theologian's hat on today for the most part. We're trying to be, but uh, you know, rejection really is an extre- a painful experience. Can you imagine? Uh, they only have, I think, like five or, or ten or seven rounds now in the NFL draft. Back in the old days, they used to have like 33 rounds. But they've got a, you know, a finite number of, of, of rounds. Not everybody who's really good in college gets drafted. I mean, and they're, it's not necessarily the end. You cannot get drafted and you can still go on as an independent free agent. Some of them actually make it and become good players. But it's a small chance. But, I mean, can you imagine maybe you were the best quarterback in your high school, best quarterback in your, in your college, university thing, and, uh, maybe won some conference championships, and you're waiting on draft night and the first round. You you knew probably the first round, but your agent to be said you'd be second or third, second round, third round, fourth round, fifth round. Is that is, is it five or seven? Seven. Okay. Well, sixth round for sure. Now it's nervous time. You were a hot shot. You're pretty good. Now you're white and you can't jump. But I mean, so that's going to hurt you. But uh, you know that's a problem. But just because of talent, you know that's it. But uh, but now seventh, that's pressure. Seventh round? Maybe nobody wants me. I mean, uh, that's where we started with sports drafting. But we've all done that. I mean, we've all wanted to be uh, friends with somebody and they don't want to be your friend or, you know, we've all felt rejection. It's a very, very painful thing. And I would never belittle that. But I saw this quote and I thought it was really great. So maybe somebody here has been rejected recently and it can be very painful and, and you're, you're going to deal with this at some level all the time. Uh, in your life, but uh, rejection is not someone wanting you out of their life. It's bigger than that. Rejection is someone that God wanted out of your future. Isn't that a nice idea? Uh, and so the next time some human being rejects you, or you might, you know, it might be. A, I always felt like you know the the Corbin boys should have won three Crossmans. They won two out of three. They were all nominated for Crossmans, and I always thought you know that all three of them should have won Crossmans. So sometimes the the person who deserves a prize like that actually gets it, but all the nominees are very very good. And uh, some years uh, I've known some of those nominees, and in my opinion, somebody was much better than the person who actually ends up winning it. You know, so even when awards are given out, all human awards you know, have their own frailties. You know, you may not get the best employee award uh, this this time. And, and Debbie, uh, the school district, about eight years ago decided to build morale among the staff, decided to come up with his award, the employee of the period, not the semester, but the period, they decided it was going to be like five and a half months based on the lunar calendar or something. And Debbie was the employee of the period for the Duncan Public Schools. First one. And then for some reason, they decided never to do it again. <laughs> so she she was the employee of the period. You know, uh, and which was a very unique award because it was going to, I guess they decided that helped morale so much that everybody thought, you know, but, uh, and I thought, A, I believe she deserved that award, actually. Of course, I'm not objective on that, but she was just so good, nobody else could measure up, I guess. But I thought this was a great quote, and uh, maybe this will help you if you're there today or some other time in the future. I know that uh, Eric and Lindley take pictures of the PowerPoint thing sometimes, so feel free. But uh, rejection is not, if you really do believe in the sovereignty of God, and I do, is not someone wanting you out of their life. It's someone that God wanted out of your future. Okay? And I, and I look at somebody like Ashley or Lindley or Sonia or somebody with a soft heart out there. Uh, Phyllis, you still have a soft heart, don't you? I mean, 
not everybody is going to love you, you folks, as much as I do. I mean, I, what, what's there not to like about Phyllis? What there's not, what's, what's not to like about, you know, Sonia? I, when people don't like you or don't treat you nice, it blows my mind. But I think that's, that's helpful. But what I really was driving at today was this. Uh, the original readers of First Peter, who have been rejected by their culture, persecuted, forced to become refugees, the powers that be have rejected them. They're seen as deplorable, you might say, uh, forced to relocate. But God hadn't rejected them. In fact, God, in all eternity, had selected them, had chosen them. And they are among God's draft picks. And so are you. If you said, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner I can't fix it. I believe you can and I want you to. I believe you paid for my sin down on the cross and rose again. I embrace you as my Savior. And as uh, as one who believes in you, I want to love you and serve you and give my whole life to you. It's the effect of all that. That's the essence of saving faith. And when you choose God, uh, you can take it for sure that he already knew that was going to happen. And in fact, he chose you before you ever chose him. Salvation's of the Lord. And now as one of God's draft picks, he wants us to suit up and get between the lines and score some points for him as we await permanent change of station. And then, because this was pretty serious, heavy thinking today, let's go back to that original picture of uh, Eli and, and Coach uh, Tom Coughlin. And let's say, let's put your picture there, okay? In fact, that's, that's too uh, abstract. Let's put your picture there. Even Ron Miller is uh, one of uh, God's draft picks. So treat him with a little respect today, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, fill our hearts with awe at just attempting to think about uh, this whole area of truth and whether one be a Calvinist or an Arminian or in the middle, uh, an Admiraldian. Uh, just help us just to be full of joy that your purpose and program for Reality and for us is ginormous. It's incredible. It's full of grace and love and mercy. And we're so thankful that you love the world so much you gave your son to be the savior that whosoever believeth on him, whether there be a Calvinist believer or an Arminian believer or a Calvinian believer shall not perish but has everlasting life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.